0: this time on a Saturday afternoon, I'm always amazed that there's anybody still here. But uh, thank you for staying. Um, Somebody suggested, and I think it's very reasonable, that a quick review of where I've come from might be helpful. Um, So far, this is what I think I've done, according to my notes. Uh, You can disagree, of course. That our problem is that we have accepted a diminished story. We haven't understood the Mosaic Law, for instance. Uh, We... Don't know any ancient history about how uh, moral relativism really began way back with the Greeks. We've lost the richer epistemology they did have, particularly teleology, and I'm going to talk about it in a moment. Um, I ought to have gone on to say that we've also lost the poetic expression of the Mosaic law in when, when the psalmist and the writer of Proverbs says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And our education system has lost the whole idea of wisdom. As I said, Lewis understood that for the medievals, wisdom, uh, virtue and self-discipline were the key things that had to be learned. We don't teach them at all. Eliot, of course, understood that that was going to happen when he wrote Choruses on the Rock with that marvelous summary of where we were going, that where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge, where is the knowledge we have lost in information. And if you live in a science faculty as I have, you are likely to have a dean who is proud of the fact that he's produced an information-rich environment without realizing that there is such a thing as wisdom. Uh, And the church is not doing a great deal to help in that area. Uh, I skipped the next bit, so I have to skip it again. Um, I talked then about the beginning of the Christian era and the way childcare, in my view, played a major role in the success of the church and the disaster that followed it in Constantine. But the Dark Ages were not so dark, and they shouldn't be called the Dark Ages. Uh, The monastic system did save Western Europe. That marvelous peroration of MacIntyre at the end of After Virtue, where he says at the end of the book, if you've followed my argument thus far, you will understand that I am proposing that we, at the end of the 20th century, as he was writing, have already entered upon a second Dark Ages. But we should not be entirely without hope. Because the last time this happened, good men and women withdrew from the task of shoring up the Roman Imperium into the task of forming communities within which they could keep the civilities and the virtues alive, and they succeeded. The only difference is, last time the barbarians were waiting at the gate, and this time they have been ruling us for quite some time. And it is our failure to appreciate that fact that is at the heart of the problem. Now you see that very clearly in the professional courses that are being organized in medicine, in law, in all the ancillary services to medicine where the administrators who wish to have more university courses are taking money from students for no good reason. Uh, and in the process making all the services more expensive in the long run. Uh, nursing I- is an example but it's all the ancillary services. And, We're responsible because we've been asleep at the wheel. But that idea that we're waiting for doubtless new St. Benedict, I think the outlines of what's going to happen are already beginning to become apparent. The first area that clearly has made the move is home and Christian schooling. Those people who have realized that the state cannot be trusted with the education of the young when it turns the education system into social engineering when you're making grade one kids put condoms on bananas because of particular sexually orientated groups who want that to be done. Uh, And my colleagues in in the whole area of prevention who are as blind as it is possible to be. Uh, I was delighted when at the, I think it was the second World AIDS Conference, somehow a smart woman got to that question microphone and they would got all these experts on the prevention of AIDS in a panel, and she got there and she held up a condom and she said, which of you would have sex with an HIV positive person using only this as your protection? And they all sat there as embarrassed as Hillary and uh, Bill when Mother Teresa said, don't kill them, Mr. President, give them to me. Uh, Marvellous moments on both occasions. Uh, There is evidence that things are happening. The growth of a magazine like First Things and Touchstone are further examples that uh, we shouldn't give up. And certainly I have, in my travels, the wonderful recurrent experience of finding university students asking me questions for two, three hours. Now, yesterday I did an hour's uh, church at your Lutheran Bible college in Camrose. And then I went to the cafeteria and had a cup of coffee and... I sat in the cafeteria from 11 o'clock till 3 in the afternoon with continuous flow of people coming to ask questions. Uh, That's encouraging. Uh, That's real. The college that we run is deeply encouraging to us when uh, you see how much the students have been through that procedure, that process of learning, love it. Uh, Just to illustrate, uh, we had a wedding uh, last year, I think it was, that we were invited to from a student from about 10 years ago. Um, And we were delighted to go and we were free. And when we got there, he he was a doctor by this stage. uh, 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 He's doing uh, radiation oncology. And uh, of course, there were a few doctors at his uh, wedding who he'd met en route through medical school. But three quarters of his class from 10 years ago at Augustine, where it's his wedding. And they came from all over North America to get there. That's They keep in touch. It's a foundational phenomenon in their lives. It gives a bigger perspective. Uh, we need that. And we've got to go on in that direction. So picking up at that point, the next person that I would love uh, to see more written about by Christians uh, I'm not the person really to do it, but William of Ockham seems to me to be a much more important person than many people realize, certainly for scientists. Now, most of you will have heard of Ockham's razor. You shouldn't have a more complex hypothesis than is necessary to explain the data. That, of course, is not true. What you want is, is the hypothesis that explains the data truthfully. Uh, a hypothesis that works but isn't uh, true is no use to you, like the one that the Darwinians use for the explanation of altruism that's in every textbook in high school, and it's an explanation that doesn't explain. That's no use to you, but it's simple. Uh, that's the reductionism that came from Ockham. Now, Ockham was a very smart monk, a Franciscan, um, and he he did his work with the intention of helping the Christian world, not destroying it. Descartes similarly set out uh, to help the Christian world, not to make it more difficult. But what they did in the process, Occam in particular, uh, wanting... I don't know how much he understood it. This is why I wanted a philosopher and historian to educate me in this area a bit more. But whether he intended it or not, he ended up by making us pay more attention to the particular facts that were around us and taking paying less attention to goodness, beauty and truth and the like. He denied that they had any real existence. And of course, from a scientific point of view, you can't go and take a a bottle of truth off the shelf or beauty or red or green. There are lots of things out there, qualities, uh, which don't have a material existence. That doesn't mean they don't exist. But that's what happened. Uh, Descartes, trying to get a firm foundation to start with, got to one that wasn't a firm foundation, I think, therefore I am, is not the firm foundation he thought it was. The Jews, of course, if we get went back to the Shema, note that in Deuteronomy, mind is not in the list. Because for the Jew, the idea, as I understand it, of separating heart and mind was nonsensical. The two were related. Now, Jesus puts mind in, in the New Testament, presumably because he knows about us. And that we will be heart-orientated and with a reduced view of what the heart is. That's our problem. So, I guess Newton was the last person who understood fact in the old sense of the word. Uh, The group over here, the students, if I said to you, just give me the facts... You would think that I was talking about things that could be measured, right? Things that were available to everybody with the use of the five senses or their extension in instruments. Those would be facts. But not for Newton. Newton understood that moral facts were the reliable ones and that physical facts were provisional, dependent upon our understanding. Newton was right. But of course, what was happening at the same time was the disaster of Galileo or or thereabouts. Now, how many of you could tell me which verse in the Bible it was that caused all the trouble for the Catholic Church versus Galileo? I'm I'm not doing this to embarrass you, although in one way I am, of course. Uh, What I want to do is make you feel a bit guilty about learning a bit more history. Who's going to offer me the answer to that question? Where's the gentleman who knows his Bible? Hmm? Isn't that interesting? You probably get hammered with Galileo all the while. Well, the verse is this. The earth is fixed and shall not be moved forever. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from the Psalms. Now, if you read poetry like a scientific textbook, you're in trouble. At that point, the Catholic Church was as committed to a literal understanding of the Bible as a fundamentalist from the southern states is now. But they were cured of that by the Galileo affair, as Galileo has put it. In the end, the Bible tells us how to go to heaven, not how the heavens go, um, and the world was changed. But the Church suffered a great setback because of it. And what was happening was the beginnings of reductionism, and reductionism is what destroyed my spiritual life for 20 years. Because I went to medical school from a Christian background where all the questions I needed to be attacked had never been talked about. uh, And the ones that I did know about, I would never be asked about in the university. Uh, No one in a modern university will ever ask any of your children about the infallibility of scripture. They would not believe that anybody believed a book was infallible. Uh, So teaching them that is basically a waste of time uh, without a lot more uh, talk about it than we normally give to it. So... I arrived from a very Biblicist background. I knew the Bible extremely well, which was a wonderful gift for which I never ceased to to thank my parents. Uh, And I happened to be smart. I didn't know that, but that in retrospect turns out to be the truth. So rapidly I was fascinated by the science of medicine. And very shortly I stopped seeing people and started seeing problems. There were a few nice patients who tried to educate me in those days and they failed um i look back on them and hopefully i'll meet them in heaven and thank them for their efforts so even though they were failures at the time in the long run they played a role i remember one woman who came in very early in my after i qualified as a physician i was only 22 and uh, looked as though i was 18 so it must have been difficult for her um but a working class woman And she came in just feeling a bit nauseated, but it didn't take long to make the diagnosis that she actually had severe renal failure. Uh, This was before dialysis was available. Now, I could improve her acidosis and deal with the nausea, but she was a smart woman. In those days, you stayed in hospital for a week or 10 days for almost everything. Um, And after a few days, she said to me, I'm not really getting better, am I? Now, I knew she wasn't, but I was trying to work out how I did it. I said, well, I was going to talk with your husband tonight. She said, don't you think you should talk to me as well? Lesson one, which I sort of took, but not very well. Wonderfully, she was a Christian woman, uh, and I'd recognized that because she had a Bible by her bed, and I made a comment about that. So that was helpful. So that night, I talked to her and her husband um, and told them that, in fact, she'd be very fortunate to get out of hospital alive. Uh, And if she did, it wouldn't be many months before she'd be dead. I had two children, sort of eight and eleven, that sort of age. That family then proceeded really to lay out an object lesson about how to die for me. There are lots of people in the ward who were playing that terrible charade of people who've shared their lives together for the last few weeks, can't even tell the truth to one another. Saying, how do you feel today, dear, or a little better, when it's actually a little worse. Truth is important. This family did it right. They told the children, Mommy is not going to get better, but God knows what he's doing. They wept together, they prayed together, and she died well. I got Christmas cards from Dad telling me that that he and the kids were doing well for the next couple of years. It moved me, but it didn't move me enough. I still continued to treat patients as though they were biochemical and physiological problems. Another guy tried to cure me of this problem too. Uh, I was putting in some of the first pacemakers in the world. There were probably less than 200 working at the time and I happened to be part of that experimental process. So the early pacemakers are not like they are now where you even put them in dogs, you know, they're, they're easy to put in now, but they could take hours to get in place initially because the catheters were being made in the lab and... Uh, getting them to loop up in the right way and flick through the mitral, the tricuspid valve into the ventricle. Nobody had done it very much. Uh, we, had to, we were learning en route, so to speak. Um, most of them, of course, were elderly. We thought they'd be basically people who were having heart attacks, but they weren't. It was a, special, a disease we knew nothing about. Um, and then I got this telephone call from another hospital saying we've got a man in his 30s having these kinds of problems and, would you be interested? I said, sure, young fit guy for a change, send him over. So he arrived and of course he was met by me, this very young looking guy in a white coat and every time he passed out every few hours over the previous few days and every time he came round, great anxiety round his bed but I didn't even bother to run a new electrocardiogram. I knew what his disease was and what to do and I said, well... What we're going to do for you is, I said, basically you're going to make a small cut in your jugular vein, uh, put a tube through it into your heart and put some electricity through that, and that will make your heart beat again. Any questions? I was just about that blunt, I suspect. And he sort of said no, and I said fine, I'm going to have a sandwich, I'll see you in 20 minutes in the Castor lab. Now these things, as I said, usually took hours to place at that time, but this one went like a charm. And 15 minutes later he was pacing beautifully, and I was full of myself, uh, very pleased with myself. Now, fortunately, he was a Yorkshireman, So over the next few weeks, we got to know one another as he came, kept back, came back for checkups because the catheters lasted six weeks to three months at that stage. Uh, and after a few weeks, he said, you know, the first time I met you, I thought you were the most arrogant young bastard I've ever met. I mean, in Yorkshire, they can be very blunt. And I said, oh, I'm sorry, Why? And he said, you made me feel like a piece of meat. And I said, I'm sorry, I didn't intend to do that, but I didn't change. I was going down that route of honoring physical facts and physical measurements and forgetting about the things that really matter. And this is where we as Christians... I uh, have to repent and start teaching our young people in particular how to talk about these things. Because, of course, when you go down that reductionistic route, shortly, in a year or two, I was doing infectious diseases and seeing women uh, coming in with a rash who were pregnant and saying, is this German measles? Is this rubella? We had no vaccine at that point. And I would look at it and say, well, looks like it. Take some blood today. Uh, I'll write you a a form and you can get another blood test in 10 days time. Come and see me two days later and we'll know. So a couple of weeks later I'd see the woman again and now I would have proof that she had the disease or not. And then I had to look at the dates of the pregnancy and decide whether there was a risk or not. And every now and again I had to tell a woman, yes, you do have rubella and you're facing anything up to a 90% probability of a baby with major cardiac and or neurological problems. Now abortion was illegal at the time. We never used the word. I simply said, this pregnancy's gone wrong, hasn't it? Would you like to start again? And what do you think she said? Of course, in most cases, yes. And I said, well, we can do that. You'll have to come into hospital for a little procedure and then you can start again. We never used the word abortion and it was done on the uh, obs list just as a DNC. And I felt no guilt about it at that time, because I'd already got to the point where people came with a problem, and my job was to solve the problem, and uh, that end of solving the problem justified any means en route. Um, I didn't think about it. I, in fact, was pleased when abortion was legalized by case law in Britain, because it meant that we were no longer at risk. Uh, It was initially for rape, but it would certainly cover what we were doing without any trouble. A lawyer could drive a bus through the hole they'd made in the law. Um, But no one, no one at that time thought this was going to expand to 50 million abortions a a year around the world, which is what's happened. Uh, And it was 20 years before I woke up and thought about this properly. Um, I was too busy. Doing what Browning warned us not to. Let not ambition mock their useful toil, their homely joys. Ambition mocked. I developed a long CV of scientific papers that I'd published, which I now refer to as my curriculum vanitas, uh, which is what it is. Uh, But uh, I did begin to start to think about what was happening around me because I couldn't help but see that the students I was teaching were not enjoying life as I did. I remember going home to my wife one night and saying to her, you know, the kids I teach, even in my small class in biochemistry, where I have to confess I never even bothered to learn the names of 20 kids. um, They're not having the fun that you and I had. We really enjoyed school Uh, in my day. There were two exams in medicine, one at 18 months where they threw out 40% of you. Well, I was in the top 50, so that was no problem. Uh, And then you went till five years for another exam. Um, And you're examined on everything you're supposed to have done in the previous five years, so it couldn't be trivial pursuit. It, It had to be basics. And it meant that I could miss the bits of the course I didn't like and go climbing, which I did about a month a year. I played truant. And even the people who taught me, who knew that that was happening, actually, in a way, approved of it. Uh, you couldn't imagine the sorts of things happening. I remember going to the dean on one occasion saying, I want to take a holiday. Well, it was the vice dean, actually. He was, was a gynecologist and a, a man who lived in a, a world with servants and things like that. And he said, oh, all right, uh, what are you going to miss? I said orthopedics. I'm not going to be an orthopedic surgeon. He said, no, it's not really your sort of thing, is it? And I never did any orthopedics. Uh, I learned enough from the book to pass in 20 minutes. But uh, then he said, where are you going? And I said, well, I'm going to climb in the Carpathians. Of course, he didn't know where they were. And so he said, where are they? I said, well, actually, they're in Czechoslovakia. He said, but that's a communist country, which it was in those days. I said, yes, but it's now open for climbing and they've got some interesting mountains. He said, get yourself a young woman and go to the south of France. I'll give you an extra week. That was the ethos of the medical school in those days. Uh, You can't imagine that now, can you? With everything being nanny-stated along the way and people taking uh, attendance at lectures, etc., etc. Rubbish. Um, But uh, it was a wonderful experience, and I went through it happily and followed this academic career. And it wasn't until some 20 years later that watching the students go wrong, I said to my wife, they're not enjoying it. And she said, why don't you bring them home to supper? I said, would you feed them? She said, of course I would. She's a good cook. So I asked my class, I thought they won't come, but they all came. Uh, and uh, we had a good meal. and uh, Being Baptist, it was a very good meal. Uh, not being Baptist, I should say, it was a very good meal. Uh, some of you mean, understand what I mean by that. Uh, and then we settled down and started talking. And to my astonishment, these kids, many of them came from good backgrounds, had never had a serious discussion of any of the existential questions that you have to answer in medicine. You you need to understand what justice is. You need to understand what death and suffering are about. You need some means to handle these things. they had none. They left after midnight and it became a regular event. The trouble is, once you start doing that, the next thing is you start to like these people, and then they wreck your life, because they start coming back to you and asking you questions, and it was the students who pushed me step by step into what I do now, and along the route, in relation to what we're talking about here this weekend, the sanctity of life, I never touched the issue of abortion, but I did know that I had been wrong, uh, and that abortion was wrong for Christians Uh, and I understood how if you are a reductionist, somebody who believes that only physical facts matter and that life has no meaning, abortion was perfectly right. To that extent moral relativism is true. Uh, You have to have a starting proposition. If your starting proposition is that there is no life after death and that basically life is meaningless, then abortion is perfectly rational and your ethics, if they're rational ethics and utilitarian ethics, you're going to be an ethical abortionist, but only if you're an absurdist in some sense. And I wasn't. Now, I had got away from discussing it or thinking about it by the easy escape route that the feminists had provided, that abortion was a woman's issue and I shouldn't bother with it. I was a man. And I felt that that was right. And then one day... I foolishly asked myself in a fit of boredom, can I think that that is right? And to my horror, I discovered that I couldn't. Uh, And at the end of the afternoon, I knew that a woman had no right to kill the unborn. She only felt she did, but she could not think it. Um, I didn't do anything about it until, again, students got to me 10 years ago, I'm told, this year. Uh, I didn't know it was that long ago, but my wife had set up a website and so students, medical students around the continent know where I'm going because small groups of Christians who can't afford to get me there, if they see some richer group taking me and I'm en route, they take along. And I was going to the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor and of course the students at Wayne State called. They knew where I lived and they knew to get to Ann Arbor from Ottawa I had to go through Detroit. And so they called and said, will you talk to us first before you go to Michigan? I said, sure, what do you want me to do? And they said, well, it will be January the 22nd. We want you to talk about abortion in the medical school in the middle of the day. And I said, well, sorry, I don't do that. And they said, we think you could do that. We've heard you speak. I said, very kind of you to be so kind, but it still doesn't make me one whit more willing to do it. And then they did the Christian thing and said, we've been praying about it. Uh, And they had, and I'd been feeling guilty about it, and with the help of Robert Spitzer, I had worked out how I would do it. Now, that goes on into last last year's lecture, and there's a CD over there called Pursuing Justice for the Unborn, which lays it out for you. But basically, the approach that I take now is to... Change the question that you ask pro-choice people and the question we need to ask them is that question, what would you need to believe to be a rational, coherent, ethical abortionist? And that question can be answered, Uh, I'm not going to deal with it now. And then when you've done that, you can get them to see that both Mother Teresa and Henry Morgenthaler, for example, are rational. Mother Teresa's position is not more religious than Henry Morgenthaler's. They are both religious in the sense that they're based on a belief system. Henry believes there is no God, and sadly, I believe he's going to find out that he's wrong. Mother Teresa believed there was a God. That entirely changes the rational duties that follow from those two positions. Uh, And you can do that. And you can get any group of medical students to see... That is, is the person who uses the word bigot who is the bigot. And then you do an outcome analysis of the two stories and it ends in dead silence. But what I want to finish with before we get to questions is to get you to think a bit more about what our current responsibilities are if we're going to do anything about this. Now, Iris Murdoch a long while ago made a very insightful comment. I've forgotten where it came from. but. She recognised that, as she put it, it is the nature of liberal democracies to discourage any discussion of the basis of liberal democracy. The liberals always want to start the discussion without discussion of premises. We have to force them back to the premises. And that requires training. That requires knowledge of the history of ideas. That requires an integrated learning that involves people On the sharp end, like me, philosophers like Jonathan over there, uh, theologians, we have to come together. This requires learning in the old-fashioned Christian sense of a university which has a unitary view of truth. Whereas the secular universities in this country, and maybe even this one, are actually multiversities because there's no agreement about the nature of truth between the faculties. Naive scientists like me believe that I actually find out something that is true, at least in a provisional way, about the nature of God's creation. Historians say you can't actually know anything because the documents were written by the winners. It's all relative. Uh, There's no conversation between those two. And it is that move to moral relativism and epistemological relativism that is the major problem. I usually say there are five issues that every student going to university must be able to deal with. Now, this is, you know, painting with a a broad brush, but nevertheless it's five times more complex than happens in most church youth groups or any one that I've ever met yet. You will not be asked about the fallibility of scripture or the infallibility of scripture, but if you cannot recognize and deconstruct moral relativism and the other three forms of relativism as well and understand them to some degree, You're dead in the water already. Out of that swamp comes the abortion problem and the euthanasia problem and the sanctity of life problems, but also an inappropriate understanding of tolerance, an inappropriate understanding of multiculturalism, and an inability to defend Judeo-Christian sexual ethics. Those are the issues that matter. Nothing else comes close. And particularly in the context of ethics, in most universities, particularly on the east coast of America and in the Ontario axis of... Quebec axis of of Canada and along the West Coast, the first, second, and third question that will hit a Christian student in the face when they get to university is homophobia. Uh, And many young Christians are now saying, well, I think homosexual sex is is okay if they want to do it. Instead of dealing with the issue, they're backed off and uh, they want to be nice and kind. As Peter Crave puts it, We, in the Christian and the Western world as a whole, have replaced the hard virtues of truth and justice and honor with the soft virtues of sincerity and niceness. Uh, And we need to get back to the hard virtues. Objective moral truth exists. It has to. Um, But the idea that moral truth is relative is a totally incoherent idea. It is utterly indefensible because it does away with any possibility of understanding. You only have to ask one question. I used to enjoy provoking medical students into saying all truth is relative. It's easy to do. And then I would say including that statement. Because of course to say that all truth is relative is to make an absolute statement. That is to be incoherent in your first sentence. The best you could say, it's possible, I suppose, that truth may be relative, but I couldn't possibly know that it was. On the other hand, it's possible that it isn't. How would I find out? Well, you can find out uh, in various ways. And you can certainly look at what kind of society you're going to get if you accept moral relativism and what you're going to get if you don't. And what you get when you accept it is where we're headed now. Is that an improvement on what used to be? Now, as I said, I grew up in the British equivalent of Detroit. My mother was often out speaking to women's group around the city. We never had a car. She came home on public transport. She walked for 10 minutes through semi-darkened streets to our home from the bus stop. Now, would any of you walk through Detroit after 10 o'clock at night uh, and feel comfortable? The women? Probably even the guys wouldn't feel comfortable. But there was no risk whatsoever to my mother in that working-class environment in the 1950s. Nobody can say that what's happened now is an improvement. It's not. There are lots of no-go areas in all the big cities of Britain now. That's the result of moral relativism. That's where it comes from. Now, if you can't handle this, uh, for the students I suggest you start with Peter Crave's The Best Things in Life, the last chapter, because you can put it on as a skit in your youth group or your church or wherever, uh, because Peter writes very nice dialogues, and he has written a dialogue of an imagined conversation between Socrates and a student who believes that moral truth is relative. And in about a dozen pages, without making a single statement, his reincarnation of Socrates destroys the the intellectual world of that young woman and replaces it with something more solid. He deals with this nebulous concept, which is hard to deal with. It takes time and practice. That's why uh, we need youth groups in every church to deal with these five issues. Um, it's got to be done. And if we're pro-life, it, we've got to go back this far. This is where we, we start to engage the battle. Uh, when you start from the the problem of abortion you're you're already so deeply into the mud it's very difficult to get out go much further back and start there Uh, for those of you who want a longer view of it he's written another dialogue this time very smartly he's imagined a dialogue between a orthodox muslim scholar and a sassy black american feminist now you can guess which one of those two is going to lose the argument But, of course, there's no anti-Christian comment allowed because there are no Christians involved. Muslims actually believe in objective moral truth, and we should be very glad that they do because it gives us a place to start arguing. Uh, And that's called uh, A Refutation of Moral Relativism, and it's published by Ignatius. Uh, And it's funny, it's clever, uh, and it helps you to get your mind around the problem. Now, the key reasons that most students want to be uh, moral relativism to be true is, of course, tolerance, uh, which is one of the children, inappropriate tolerance, that is, is one of the offspring of moral relativism. Uh, can any of you young people over there, would you be able to stand up not hit not here, in a nice place, but say U of, S, U of A, uh, down the road Would you stand up in front of a class and say, "I am intolerant? could you do that? You ought to be able to. Because legitimate intolerance is part of being a Christian. If you think about it carefully, you could rewrite the Ten Commandments as the Ten Divine Intolerances. They are the things that God will not tolerate because he loves us. Uh, I used to... In my, that first class designed to get rid of half the students, so to speak, uh, I used to say, you will find me to be an intolerant professor. Uh, And, of course, the body language tightened up instantly, and uh, I could see it, and i say, I see that you think I should take remedial tolerance 101, but before I do, I think I can show that you are intolerant too. Will you do a thought experiment for me? And students always say yes to professors on those terms. I say, well... How many of you know what Nambler is? How many of you do? Any of you? A few. Yeah, uh, the rest of you are nice people and you know nothing of it. Well, if you put Nambler into Google, you arrive at the North American Man-Boy Love Association. Uh, And it exists to legalize sodomy between adult men and pre-pubertal boys. Um, You can say that in any university because it's public domain. I'm I'm merely reporting what's on their website. And here's my thought experiment. I want you to imagine that in a few years' time, your parents of an nature year boy. And because of your job, you have wished on you as a house guest, a young man who, when he arrives and you have to take him for a couple of weeks, uh, he's a charming young man, but he turns out to be a member of Nambler. Now, he's clever, he's funny, he even cooks. Wonderful house guest. Uh, your son enjoys his company because he is inventive and he plays games and things like that. Now, are you going to allow this charming 28-year-old to persuade your eight-year-old that he's missing out on the sexual rights of all eight-year-olds? Stand up, if you will. How many people do you think have ever stood up? None. Not even in UBC Law School, when I've known there were members of Nambler in the audience, they don't stand up in public. And I say, well, welcome to the ranks of the intolerant. I have found something you will not tolerate. Now we get to the much more important question, Can you justify your intolerance? And I think you can. You can justify it on the grounds of love. You have every right to say that our love for that boy is rooted in eight years of sacrificial care. After all, he's still alive, at least. If he gets to 14, which is a really tempting age for uh, physician-assisted suicide, uh, it's even more apparent that you love him. Uh, But yours is rooted in three weeks of play, which is Trump's. No-brainer. Next step. It is your duty as a Christian to be intolerant of any attack upon a virtue greater than tolerance. Is that true? It's clearly true, isn't it? You can't actually use tolerance as a verb very easily in relation to something good. If you say to your wife or husband, I'll tolerate a little love tonight, it's not going to be a good opening gambit, is it? Uh, It's not the right verb. Uh... Uh, and you don't tolerate justice or courage. They're the wrong, it's the wrong verb. You tolerate a little bit of cheating, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Tolerance is important because we are fallen sinners. So Christians ought to understand the proper use of tolerance very well. But they should also understand that there are things greater than tolerance. The things that you will not tolerate. And of course, multiculturalism comes in exactly the same category. I often say to medical audiences, do you think medicine should be multicultural? And they of course say yes, and I say, well I think I can show that you're not. You don't actually believe that. You only think you do. There's nothing like telling highly intelligent people that they don't know what they think, uh, to have their attention at least. Uh, But it's very easy, I never lose. I only have to tell them one case history. I say, well, let me just tell you a case history and I think you will join me in the anti-multiculturalists. A few years ago, I said to them, I saw a little girl with a septic knee. Uh, The knee had been neglected, and by the time she came to me, she was septicemic with pus in the tibia and in the femur, and she was dying. The only thing we could do to save her life at that point was to cut off her leg and get the pus out and fill her with antibiotics. Well, I told the parents that, and they said, well, we need to think about that. I said, well, I'll go and find the surgeon. The OR will be ready in 20 minutes. Well, within 20 minutes they said, no, we will take her home to die, and they did that. And there was nothing I could do about it, because this was not in Canada. I couldn't make her a ward of court or anything like that, which is what one would have done here. But I'd finished paediatric ward rounds in the Mission Hospital, and so I said to the nurses, who were not upset, I was the only person who was upset, may I speak to you, because I need to understand. And they said, of course, and providentially asked the right question. I said to the nurses, who were mainly men, what would those parents have done if this had been a little boy? And they said, well, they'd have done the amputation. I said, why would you treat little boys and little girls differently? And they said, in our culture, it is a woman's job to till the fields, fetch the water, cook the food and bear the children. A woman with one leg cannot do those things, so she'll have a life not worth living. Now, if you're a multiculturalist, you must accept that view of the relative value of little girls and little boys as just as good as the one that is dominant in Canada. Do any of you? Of course not. You're not a multiculturalist. You only thought you were. It's one of the sacred cows of Canada that's totally incoherent, especially for medicine. I have never seen and will never see a multicultural patient. There is no such beast. Every patient one sees inhabits a particular story of meaning. And it's my job as a physician to find out what that story of meaning is, to play to its strengths and avoid its weaknesses. And where I find a belief system that I don't understand, I first look and find someone who can and refer. If not, I have to do some work. But I have never seen and will never see a multicultural patient. They don't exist. Uh, Now, the depth of our views varies greatly. Now, this opens all sorts of doors for us as Christians, especially, uh, I suspect it can be done elsewhere, but certainly in medicine. And one of my colleagues in McGill, Dr. David Dawson, who's a wonderful internist, uh, very practical, unlike me, and he invited me to McGill uh, two or three years back to give a series of talks, which I did. And then afterwards he said, John, you live in cloud cuckoo land at times, you know, but there's something very practical that should be done with what you've been talking about. I'm going to do it. And then he did something quite saintly. He volunteered to teach the introduction to clinical skills. Now, that is a terrible course to teach uh, because the course is a course really in applied hypocrisy. uh, Because you have to teach students to hear sounds they can't hear. Uh, and the course is concluded to be successful when they say they can hear sounds that they can't hear. Um, They will hear them eventually, but it's not done in the space of a few, few weeks. In fact, because they are clinical skills, like all real skills, they take time to master and to obtain. But he volunteered to do it because he's very good at it, but primarily because he saw a brilliant opportunity. And he's at McGill, probably the most cosmopolitan medical school in North America. And so, at the beginning of the class, he asked the students to identify their belief systems, anonymously, and then he made a little bar diagram. And of course, in McGill, everything was there. Even Zoroastrians are in the, 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 uh, the class. Rather, too few Christians. A uh, considerable number of atheists. Anyway, he'd got a nice little bar di- diagram. Then he took stats can stats can data on beliefs in Canada, in other words, the patients. Now, you probably don't know the data. You ought to, because it's very important. In the most multicultural country in the world, in terms of immigration patterns, it's not what you would expect, which really upset the Liberal government the first time this was done properly about 12 years ago. Uh, Our population is stable, around 30 million, and I have the figures in my head in millions. But just multiply by three if you want percentages and you'll be close enough. Now, in 1991, they did it very well because they gave a list of all the world's known religions, including Satanism, nothing, and and you name it, it was on the list. Uh, And if you got fingered for that subset, uh, you had to pick your belief system. I know what Canadians did... They found out what they were by knowing what they were not. I'm not a Zoroastrian, don't know what it is. I'm certainly not a Satanist, I'm not a nothing. And I'm not actually a Jew, a Buddhist or a Hindu. Oh dear, I must be Christian. And Canada is an interesting country. It's populated by, oh dear, I must be Christian people. Uh, They're not proud of the fact that they're Christian. But it is if they have a default position, when they come to die, they die as, oh dear, I must be Christian. Uh, And that's where you have to start from. Uh, So David put up the the Stats Canada data and they turn out like this. In the end, when the data was filled in, just over 30 million Canadians and the population's not changing much because their abortion rate equals their immigration rate. um, In 1991, in the end, nearly 14 million decided they were Catholic. Nearly 10 million decided that they were Protestant. That's 24 out of 30 straight off. So there you are, up at nearly 75%. There's another little group which are also Christian, so it is 75%. But what do you think the third biggest religion in Canada is? You must, even Canadians, have opinions. What do you think it is? No, not atheists. They're hardly a blip on the agenda. Hmm? Yeah, Muslim is what you'd say, but it's wrong. Um, The third religion is, I don't have a religion. They put that in too. Don't know was one of the options. I call it Seinfeldism. Uh, That was at about three and a half million 15 years ago. It's the only religion that grew significantly in the next 10 years. All other groups uh, in 1991 were under 600,000. And no other group has yet passed a million, although the Muslims were certain they had. But there are a lot of Muslims in this country who are only Muslim because they're frightened of the other Muslims. And when they're filling in a a form, they don't have to be afraid because they're not going to find out. So, and I I think it... I've seen some data that suggests that the children of Muslims are amongst the least likely group to continue the religion of their parents. Uh, And I can understand that, and that's only likely to get more so as it it must be awfully difficult to be a Muslim and defend what's going on in the world at the moment. So nothingness is increasing. In Britain, where it's even worse, in fact several hundred thousand wrote in that they were Jedi Knights. That's the Western world, declining into soft nihilism. Read David Hart in First Things, Christ and Nothing, if you want a beautiful essay on this, uh, as only David Hart could write. So he then said to them, is there a bias here? And of course, students in their first couple of years are still honest. They said, yes, there is. There's a mismatch between the belief structure of the class and the belief structure of our patients. And David said, I know that. So I have arranged this afternoon for an exercise that will help you. And this is brilliant. And it should happen in every medical school. It cannot be resisted because of its pedagogic power. What he did was he went around his colleagues and he found uh, a Roman Catholic uh, physician. He found a Greek Orthodox physician, uh, a Jew, a Muslim, a Hindu. Couldn't actually find a Buddhist uh, on staff. Uh, and of course... He didn't have an atheist or an agnostic or nothing because he wanted them to bring their priest, imam, rabbi, or uh, pastor with them. But he got those those group, and what he did is he got them to come as pairs, and the students rotated one afternoon around each of these pairs. And they had to discuss how somebody who shares our belief would wish you to handle their death and dying. So they would take a case history of somebody with a mortal disease and talk about what to do. Now, David himself cheated a little bit because he didn't take his pastor. He took his pastor's wife. Uh, he passed it off very easily to begin with because she was an oncological nurse. Uh, and that made, you know, you could get away with that. Uh, that wasn't the real reason. But she told the class uh, about a problem that she was dealing with at the time of a woman who had two children, pre-pubertal children, who was going to die of cancer in the next, within the next year. And what you could do to help somebody who shared that be- her belief system uh, to handle that tragedy. And the kids were still sensitive at that stage. They were in tears as she told the story. And there were lots of questions. And then she said at the end, I have to be honest with you. I am that woman. And then there were really tears. They refused to go to the next class and that session in the introductory course to clinical medicine was the most popular event in the whole of the introductory course. And the students said, why don't we get more of this because this is for real? We need as Christians to see that every medical school in the country is forced to do that because they have created the rules which say medical students must be culturally competent. Isn't that helpful? That's a new required competence for medical students. Um, I can drive a bus through that hole. This is cultural competence. Multiculturalism is, cul- is, is incompetence because it has no application to medicine. It's particulars that matter to people. Patients are particular. Societies may be sick in sociological terms but not in medical ones. Uh, we need to do that. In this context, and I must stop at this point because my time is gone, but I want you to go away thinking about some other things that we can start to do which will change the ethos in a way that will necessarily lead ultimately to less abortion. And they come out of the church. This is where we need the church. And the church has to come back to help us because they have deserted their post. Uh, In my lifetime... The nature of causation of disease has changed. I, haven't, I don't know of any writing on this yet. I'm very lazy. I've written an outline of a paper which I haven't finished and it's been sitting there for about two years, much to my wife's annoyance. But she'll bully me into finishing at some point. Or maybe I'll find somebody who likes writing and say, give me the notes and I'll help you write it. And that would be fine by me. But when I started in medicine 50 years ago, most of the patients I saw, well... There's my friend in the second row there. Think back to when you were early in medicine. What proportion of the patients who came to see you, say when you were doing family practice or internal medicine, came because of what God or nature had done to them? And what proportion came because of what they had done to themselves? How would you answer that? You can't remember. That's a good excuse. Well, usually I get the figure. 70% of patients, certainly for me this is true, came to see me because of what God or nature had done to them. Even smoking wasn't wrong uh, 50 years ago. We were beginning to realize it was, but it wasn't really wrong. People didn't feel guilty about smoking like they do now. And only about 20% came because of something like a sexually transmitted disease for which they were clearly responsible. Now... If you are now, that, that ratio is reversed. And if you go to an inner city clinic in many, any big city here, nearly 100% of the patients are there, at least in part because of what they've done to themselves. Now, if you are sick and suffering because of what you have done to yourself, and those you love are suffering with you because of your behavior, what do you have to deal with as well as your diagnosis? Guilt. Do you know, there isn't a textbook of medicine that has the word guilt in the index, except psychiatry, and it says guilt feelings, evidence of depression. Because they are intrinsic moral relativists. They don't believe in objective moral truth, so guilt is non-existent, it's imagined. But of course they're wrong. And all these people who are suffering because of their own behavior know that they are wrong. There is no solution for guilt that comes in the form of a pill. The only solution is repentance, confession, restitution, reconciliation, grace, justification. None of those words occur in the index of the textbook. That has to change. Because democracy, not religion, but democracy demands it. Those statistical data from stats can demand it. In fact, at least 50% of the medical schools ought to be unashamedly pro-life, not for religious reasons, but for reasons of democracy and justice. That's the way we have to argue the case. Does not a woman who is pro-life have as much right to a doctor who shares her beliefs as a woman who's pro-choice has a right to a doctor, or at least an abortionist, who will kill the baby she doesn't want? In fact, I would say more so. Currently, of course, there's been an attack in Canada, in Britain, in Australia, a successful one, and one in America, the other four not yet successful, to take away the rights of a physician, the rights of conscience. The UN Women's Committee around the world, with smaller nations, I've just been in Jamaica helping them to resist these people, are proposing draconian laws in which if you will not refer a woman for abortion, you will be fined and or sent to prison for each offence. Now, you only need one question, and every church needs it on the bulletin at some point. Do you wish to be cared for by a doctor with or without moral integrity? No one actually wants a doctor without moral integrity. It therefore follows that no one has the right to destroy the moral integrity of a physician. It is a primary good for the practice of medicine. It is an essential good for the practice of medicine for everyone. Now, where we, as we are now, we have no moral consensus. You're going to need at least two practices of medicine, in my view. We need to do things about rights of conscience. We also need, in our churches, to set up power of attorney. Because no one especially the elderly, should go to interact with our healthcare system now without someone with them who is not emotionally involved in what's going on and who is tough enough to stand up to the system. Uh, The doctors will actually appreciate this. A parish nurse, in other words, whose major function is to advocate for patients. So when you go in as an elderly person to see the doctor whose time harassed, Taking the nurse with you is very good. Not to sit outside the clinic to go with the patient. Now the doctor can ask the questions of you, the elderly person, that he needs to, and then dump what has to be considered and thought about on the nurse who understands the vocabulary. Then the nurse and the patients can go and have as many cups of coffee and meals as they need to work through what they want to do. And then go back and say what they want, because they do have autonomy at that level. Um... Very shortly, of course, that will be a good way to get more elderly people in your church because the news will go round, And actually, it will be a self-funding proposition because you can say to the elderly who have experienced it, you know, we're paying for this out of church funds. Would you like to change your will to make this a little bit easier? They say, no problem. What do I do? And we begin to start to take back what was ours in the first place. We invented the university. We invented the hospital. It's time to take it back. Now, I had many more things I wanted to say, uh, but it's time you went and relaxed and enjoyed what's left of a weekend, which in at least one case, I think, is a birthday weekend. Uh, I find it astonishing that somebody would come to listen to me on their birthday. But there you go. Thank you. I don't know if there are any questions. Uh, oh, straight away. <laughs> There's one behind you. The mic's dead. That, that's a message from God, I think. No, they want to record it, though. That's the problem. Can I take this one off and give it to the questioner? Uh, Marcos, I have two questions, first of all, uh, how is the Hippocratic Oath Registry going for doctors to assign to? And the second question is, if you have a um, living will, will it stand up against com- uh, medical doctors' committees in hospital that will overrule it all over the place right now? Uh, excellent question, thank you. Uh... I'm glad you asked that question because my wife would kill me if I hadn't said something about the Hippocratic Registry by the time I got home. Uh, And I always forget to. What we need, we have started, some years ago we tried to get a Hippocratic Registry of Physicians going because you see, the heart of of Hippocrates' insights were four key uh, attributes of the good doctor. That he believed in judgment after death, which rationally makes him more reliable that he understood that medicine is essentially not a technical but a moral activity, that the sanctity of life was the key uh, test of that morality, and fourthly, that rights of conscience were essential to the practice of medicine. All those were written down uh, 2,500 years ago. And they allow a much broader grouping of doctors than, say, Christian or anything like that, To my astonishment, I couldn't even get more than one-tenth of the members of the Christian Medical Dental Association to sign up for it. And all I wanted them to do was to sign up and give me their email address so that should one of our state uh, provincial governments decide that you cannot go to medical school unless you promise to do abortions, which UBC feminists are trying to push now, we would have enough signatures to be able to press the button and say, time to do only emergency call only. That would be a political disaster, wouldn't it, in our already long waiting list practice of medicine. And they would have to deal. And the deal would be, look, you cannot do this. You have got to, in a pluralistic society that no longer has a moral consensus, you have to arrange services that relate to the actual distribution of belief, not the belief of the elite. Uh, subsidiarity is the Catholic name for that doctrine. Um, so uh, it, it, it lay there for a while but with these attacks on conscience, my do-gooding wife said you've got to reactivate this. So we have reactivated it and those of you who know physicians who are Christian, tell them to go just Google Hippocratic Registry of Physicians and mm-hmm. they'll get there. We don't want any money from you really, we've got enough in the kitty to do what we need from people who've given us some money. But we do need your name and your email. If you know a Christian doctor or a Jewish doctor or anybody who would understand those principles, we want them to sign up just so that we have a sleeping giant. So that the liberal elite know that they can't ride roughshod over us because we have the... If we can get even 20% of physicians to sign up, and in fact, we ought to be able to get 50 easily, um, it would change the whole structure of how health goes. I think we need to divide medicine once more into secular, if you like to call it, and Judeo-Christian. Uh, they are different. Ours will be covenantal, theirs will be contractual. They will kill people whose lives are judged by them not to be worth living, and we won't, and so on. But the good news for us, of course, is that we will be able to say to our patients, when it gets to that point, This is a covenantal practice of medicine. That means I will stay with you up to the gates of death, you can rely upon me. But it also means that you cannot sue me on the grounds of outcome. You can certainly sue me for incompetence, but modern medicine necessarily has bad outcomes for some people. That's not the physician's fault. If an oncologist doesn't have the occasional patient with really bad consequences of oncological treatment, his overall death rates are going to be much worse than those that do have the occasional patient because oncology is differential poisoning. You take them as close as death as you can and pull them back and you get the best results. And you, you don't have the godlike capacity to get there absolutely right. The way that should be dealt with is not by litigation but by insurance. Because we, people who have bad outcomes, we want to help them. So we'll have an insurance fund so that a bad outcome can go to the board to get help. And, and that's what it would be for. We will have a different approach to people. Now, immediately we got people signing up from Australia and Europe and America and a few Canadians. As As usual, Canadians are so comfortable, it drives me mad. You know, in the States I give a a lecture and afterwards Americans will come up and say, I haven't thought about half the things you talked about in the last hour. What do I read next? And I give them a book. They read it and they write to me and say, I've read that one, what do I read next? Canadians bless them, say, that's very interesting, and they go home, pour themselves a beer, and watch hockey. Uh, we've got to change this. The churches are apathetic, and that needs to change. Now, the second part of your question, living wills, don't sign one. The church needs also, and thank you for reminding me to say this, to start a power of attorney program. When you come to die in the context of modern medicine, it is complex. And a lot of defensive medicine for the sake of lawyers is going on. What you need is people who are tough enough to walk into an intensive care unit. The ideal trio in my case would be a a lawyer, a doctor and someone like my wife or like you who won't take no for an answer. Tough minded. And they will actually be very shortly very welcome in the intensive care unit. It's not the intensivist doesn't know that this patient is going to die. They know that better than anyone else but they're frightened to say it because some lawyer might be able to twist it into litigation. So there's a lot of uh, defensive medicine being practiced because of the lawyers. Now if somebody arrives with legitimate power of attorney, that's all gone. Now I have on many occasions gone into the pediatric ICU in Ottawa uh, to see some complex metabolic problem and I enjoy those problems, uh, but often my job was to say, look, I can improve the biochemistry, but the patient you and I both know is still going to die. I think this child should die in his mother's arms in a room where the whole family can be, not in ICU. I think you should dis- we should explain that and disconnect the tubes and arrange for a proper death. And that's what should happen. And patients appreciate that when it's done well. Uh, we, we can do it because we have reason to do it. We can model the way these things should, should happen. Uh, Wesley used to say when people questioned the validity of his interpretation of how Christ could come into a life, well, come and watch our people die. Our deaths ought to be powerful means of evangelism. Uh, you can talk about that for the next hour. Any other questions? Thank you. Yes, another question here. Thank you. Sorry. Hi, Christina Schaefer. Um, my just my question quickly is, you're saying don't sign a living will, which would be the same as a personal directive, right? Doesn't, for my understanding, an enduring power of attorney only deal with financial matters? Doesn't have to. Okay. I just I'm just saying I work for a law firm and I write the wills and power of attorneys and personal directives. Um, and in my mind, what I'm seeing now is then the immense irresponsibility of what the lawyers are doing because we just have basically one precedent for every single person, and I don't think it's explained in that extent. So I don't, I think there needs to be more understanding for, for Christian people when they sign up for those sorts of documents. We need the Christian Legal Fellowship and the like to get much more active the law is much more corrosive to your faith than medicine, even, and medicine's corrosive. But there are b- roughly one-tenth of the members of the Christian Legal Fellowship that there are of the Christian Medical Dental Society. Uh, that tells you a lot, but that's because the... You're, you're tra- you've trained in law, have you, or you're just in... Yeah, but I don't know a law school that has a course on the philosophy of justice. It's all technique, and that's dangerous. Uh, but we do need to get Christian lawyers thinking about these things to make sure we do it right. Uh, after all, there are more people in church still than attend professional sport during the whole of the season. Every Sunday. So there are a lot of people out there we need to serve, and we're not serving them in these areas. And this is pre-evangelism, I think. But power of attorney can cover what you direct it to cover. That's what you're doing. It's normally money, but it doesn't have to stop there. Any other questions? I can understand that it's time for you to go home. That's okay.